0: What is digital forensics? What does it tell us about privacy? And why is this cybersecurity tool so important? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornasek. If you've listened to any true crime podcast ever or just watched the news, you'd know that forensics play an important role in solving crimes. In a world where technological advances seem to be ingrained in the fabric of our society, digital forensics have become that much more relevant. Think about apps like Snapchat and the opioid crisis. People are buying drugs off of Snapchat because they think the messages disappear forever. Well, a role of digital forensics would be to help find that data and solve the crime. That's just one of the many, many uses of this field. So today we're going to do some investigating of our own, and we're going to find out how digital forensics is beneficial to cybersecurity, how concerned we should be about our privacy, and how we can protect ourselves. Here to talk me through all of this is the founder of Hexordia and digital forensic examiner, Jessica Hyde. Jessica how's it going fantastic great to be here thank you Abby all right I just have to tell our listeners our story so (laughs) Jessica and I were on the same flight to we were back going back to New York where were we coming from Orlando, Orlando. That's right. And the woman behind me asked to switch seats with me. So I went and sat next to Jessica. We didn't talk for the first like 30 minutes of the flight. And then all of a sudden, we just started chatting and somehow digital forensics came up and uh, Jessica told me all about it. And we ended up talking for about four hours. It was wonderful. (laughs) And then I said, Jessica, you need to come on my podcast. And here she is now. So thank you for making this work. Oh, thank you. This is really exciting. And just, I love how things sometimes happen happenstance. Absolutely. So let's just start, Jessica, for the people who are unfamiliar with digital forensics. What exactly is it? Great question. So, digital
1: forensics involves the acquisition and analysis of electronic evidence. That can be everything from computers to mobile to the internet of things devices, like your smartwatch or your TV. Uh, this kind of evidence isn't just for looking at involved in computer crimes, but anything from homicide or murders to trafficking like humans, weapons, drugs, to terrorism, or even when a company's data is attacked by hackers in what's typically referred to as ransomware. Every action, that happens even if a criminal takes it or if the computer, phone or technology is just a witness, has a trace. And digital forensics examiners look at those traces.
0: All right. So tell me this, because you told me something really interesting on the flight about Alexa. What was your role Mm. in getting the data off of Alexa?
1: Yeah, that's great. In 2017, when Amazon Alexa first came out, it was something new Uh, to the market in terms of does this have data that could be useful in investigations? And myself uh, and a colleague, Brian Moran, we researched and came up with the initial methodology to obtain data from both the physical Amazon Echo to get the data off of the devices, uh, looked at the applications associated and how to parse that data, and then how to look at the data that was stored in the cloud and recover that data back. Um, Actually, during that process, we even wound up doing some responsible disclosure um, from our research, which was sharing back with Amazon um, some potential areas that could be misused, which they quickly fixed. It was fantastic how quickly they responded. And then we shared that information with the digital forensics community, and those methodologies were then used to obtain data in a variety of cases, including homicides. Incredible! Because when it comes to digital
0: forensics, I mean, you guys are responsible for helping solve crimes, and yes, it it has to do with privacy and things like that. But you're also helping people out, and and um, you know, especially when it comes to the court of law. So, can you just dive into that a little bit for me? How you guys help in solving these mysteries
1: Sure. Um, So what we're doing is the second that something happens, the forensics examiner is oftentimes called to the scene, either virtually or physically. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I mean virtually, I mean if something's happening across a network, we may be virtually going and obtaining that evidence. And if it happens physically, forensics examiners may even go on the scene um, to recover the devices and ensure that they're not still communicating. Um, and then go into acquiring that data from the device. We don't look at the direct data directly on the phone. It's not like we're going to turn your phone on and thumb through it. We're gonna make um, a forensics copy that allows us to get to the data behind the data, but also ensures that there's no changes made to the evidence. Um, And then we're gonna analyze that. Uh, Just last week, there was an incident where someone had posted a threat of a daycare facility and they posted this online and it was screen capped and reported to police. The police then reported the two counties in two different states that had the same name of where the threat was. And the forensics examiner was able to utilize their tools and trainings uh, to go and determine who that person was and they were able to arrest the suspect. And that's just one example of what we do in everyday life. How does
0: it work when it comes to privacy? Because that's obviously a really big conversation that we're having right now, Mm -hmm. especially with the advent of social media and just how transparent our world is. How does it hinder you guys or help you guys in your job in trying to
1: get this data? That's a really good question. Some folks may assume that privacy and security and forensics are at odds. We really aren't in both situations. Our goal is to protect people and organizations. The important thing to remember is that forensics examiners can only work with legal authority. And we have the duty to find both inculpatory and exculpatory evidence, so things that demonstrate innocence and guilt. Mm-hmm. What attorneys do with that, whole nother scenario that's outside <laughs> of our realm. But our job is to find truth and data. Um, so things that you may get with consent may differ than things you get with legal authority. In other words, when somebody gives consent, let's say they're the victim. And they say, I am providing you access to my computer, my phone, my Alexa, what have you, uh, to investigate. And then oftentimes we have all of the credentials necessary to actually access the data on the device. In other instances, we may be using law enforcement to serve a warrant to the Internet service provider um, mm-hmm. who are then legally bound to share the information if it's part of a crime. But of course, a judge has signed off on that. And in terms of what data is encrypted, I, I think the big thing to say here is your data and it's encrypted state. Um, as it's flying through the wire, through the air, if it's encrypted, it's it's secure from us. But we typically have physical access to the devices, mm-hmm. either of the deceased, of those people who may be uh, suspects of a crime, or of witnesses um, who are sharing their content on consent. So do we sometimes deal with data uh, in terms of, being able to look at that data in a state where it is unencrypted. Yeah, but typically, we're not looking at your messages itself. We may be looking at other activity that happened on the system that indicates the messages mm. were there. So it, it's important to remember, uh, you know, something people don't always realize is when they delete something, they really hide it from themselves. <laughs>
0: All right, Jessica, this is actually good. I had this question. I need you to be real with me.
1: Is anything really private? (laughs) That's that's a great question. So things are private if you keep your keys private. What is a key? Sure, a key, your password, your access controls. So I would say that the biggest things people should do f- to protect their own privacy, and I think we we spoke about these on our flight, um, and number one, that you should use multi-factor authentication. Right. If you're using uh, what's sometimes called two-factor authentication, Google calls it two-step verification, that means that it's something you have and something you know. So you know your password, but you have your phone to receive that SMS text or that app authentication. that's really the concept, or that email. So, if you have multi factor authentication, that's really one key. The second key is sometimes companies get hacked and passwords get released. Mm. The key is to not use the same password for multiple things. I Uh-oh. really recommend I'm in trouble. <laughs> you are, if you're using the same password for many things. My key is to not know my passwords. and You might be like, Jessica,
0: how do you not oh, know your no, passwords? No, Jessica, are you talking about those ones that's when it pops up? It's like, would you like us to? generate you a password and it's like capital X lowercase Z exclamation point comma that one of those. (laughs) And it's like 14 letters long.
1: Yeah. You know why? Because this is, this is really important. You ever see those like Facebook trends or TikTok trends where it's like, we're going to make, you know, your cool wrestler name and we just need the name of your dog and your favorite color and your month of birth. Yes. Well, those things are grabbing information about you that you may be using (sighs) in passwords.
0: Yeah, You're so scary. right.
1: Yeah. And you you used
0: wrestler name. I I appreciate that. We all know that (laughs) social media can be a little bit more lewd than that. But yes, your wrestler name. Wow. So if you say, yeah, it's like uh, your first name and then the name of your first pet, and that's your wrestler name, they're trying to kind of get information out of you to help guess your password. Is that what you're saying?
1: Exactly. And they're like, what's your star sign? So now they know only a 30 day range of your birth date. And if you think that replacing an A with an AD or an S with a dollar sign is going to get around that, it's, It's not that intensive code to then make what's a, like a short dictionary attack on yeah. your passwords, and so those dictionary attacks. But I was being can then clever. Passwords <laughs> uh, and incrementing by one isn't a good idea either. Oh <laughs> no! Number. So my password one 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 two is not is not good. Shoot. So, but so what you really want to do is if you use a password manager, then you only need to know a couple of passwords, and then you can make them unique because you only need to know the password to get into your phone or your computer and the password for your password manager. Then you can copy and paste or sync to your password manager to get your credentials into those other systems. And that allows you to use strong passwords that aren't Guessable, or you can't use a dictionary attack for. Um, And they would take a very long time to try to figure out. And then you can have a unique one for every single website. Mm. And that's what's truly going to protect you from from some of the most common attacks, but also potentially from a forensics examiner. (laughs) Uh, Because password (laughs) reuse is often um, something that we see and that we can use to sometimes decrypt secondary items. Uh, The other recommendation I have is to use a virtual private network if you're on a public Wi-Fi, what's called a VPN, Mm -hmm. that will help protect you. And then the last thing is just to keep all your apps, all your applications, and your operating system current. So when iOS annoys you and says, would you like to update, you should say yes. Oh, man. (laughs) I
0: don't think my iOS has been updated since 2015.
1: (laughs) Well, unfortunately, that leaves you open to vulnerabilities. As hackers find vulnerabilities, um, or as uh, penetration testers find vulnerabilities, what happens is is they inform those companies, just like I was talking about earlier with Responsible Disclosure. Mm -hmm. And then those vendors, Apple, Windows, your favorite app provider, they then patch those versions of apps in the new release so That they're not
0: vulnerable all right we've got to step aside for a quick recess but we'll be back right after this
1: the will kane show is now dropping five episodes a week join fox and friends weekend host will kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts
0: I want to get back to the issue of safety and privacy also, Mm -hmm. because we had a conversation about Apple AirTags, and that is something that I am extremely curious about, because being, you know, a woman or even a man in these big cities, and uh, they are using, bad people are using the tags for nefarious reasons. They're meant for good, but, you know, obviously all good things can be misused. How do you protect yourself against
1: those? That is such a great question because there is a propensity for evil with all great things, right? right? So one of the things with an Apple AirTag is that they can be programmed to tell when someone is at a predestined location. So there's two categories of people who might drop an AirTag on you or another tracker. One is folks who know you and one is folks who don't know you. So we'll start with the situation of someone who doesn't know you Mm because it's a little bit simpler. In the situation who's someone who doesn't know you, the key is, is that the AirTag won't show itself until it's been away from its home device for at least 15 minutes. And this keeps your AirTag from notifying you when you're just traveling with your AirTag. So because of that, if you're at, let's say, a club or a really public place, um, a theme park, what have you, you need to really wait 15 minutes from being around the people where you think something may have been um, put on your person or on Mm -hmm. your vehicle, for example. After 15 minutes, if you have an Android device. Note, I said Android here.
0: I, I do. You <laughs> You're hating
1: on Apple? <laughs> uh, no, not yet. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I I have a love hate relationship with all technology because again, it can be used for good or bad. Right. You can use Apple's app that they've created for Android called Tracker Detector and do an active scan. So you can scan yourself and say, hey, is there an AirTag on me? And if there is an AirTag on you, it will show you the serial number and the last four digits. Uh, You can set a, a sound so you can hear it and you can start to search for it on you. And the best thing to do to stop it is to disassemble it, and the app will show you the very easy uh, instructions to twist, rotate, and take it out. Mm. You then know the last four digits of the phone number and the serial number, and you should file a police report, right? That's with, with all things. If you have an Apple device, it gets a little bit different because Apple has passive notifications and those passive notifications means that it will tell you eight to 24 hours after wait hold on on yeah i know hold on
0: so when apple came up with this update that said hey we're gonna protect you from people using these things for bad and it's supposed to alert you it doesn't alert you until eight to 12 hours after it's already been on you then it's too late jessica yes but good news okay good tell me the good news just
1: announced just an since we ran into each other that they now are adding the feature so to newer ios versions and to newer devices where you can on their devices do a self-scan which if you remember Uh, when we (laughs) met i was like that's what apple needs to do yeah you were like you need
0: to get an android even if it's just a cheap one and you don't use it just so that you can scan yourself for the AirTag."
1: They listen to us. They listen to us. (laughs) They're always listening. (laughs) They are always listening. (laughs) No, but yeah, the good thing is, is that Apple is releasing that. So uh, the recommended thing is to really self-scan because the notifications that come out from the passive scans may not be where you want to. But again, you've got to wait... 15 minutes Mm -hmm. before you head on the subway or in your car and start to head home um, from the location where you believe it's been dropped on you because you don't necessarily want someone to know where you live. Right. Now, did make a caveat about if it's someone who knows you, you can program AirTags to not share their location when you are at a specified location and you don't have to go there. So let's say you're bringing your luggage and you're going on a trip to Orlando. We we met on a flight from Orlando. We were both there for work, but neither here nor there. Let's say you're going on a family vacation to Orlando, a popular destination. And you say, I know where my hotel is. I'm going to program my AirTag in my luggage to notify me where it is in case Mm -hmm. I lose my Mm -hmm. luggage, but I don't want it to go off in the hotel room because that would just be annoying. I'm going to be sleeping. I don't want to get the alerts. Just don't go off in my hotel room. That means that that same person, if they know where you live, or where you work, they can program those as addresses (gasps) to not give notifications. So when you're talking about that eight to 12 hour passive window, and if it's somebody you know, and maybe trust and aren't thinking about when you're around them, that's why I think it's important to have the active scan, not just the passive scan. And for folks, um, if they believe that there may be a threat to to scan themselves at regular intervals. Wait, so if somebody
0: knows where you work, they can program the air tag for that address and know exactly where. You go after you leave your office? Yes. Oh my gosh, this was supposed to be a happy podcast, Jessica. Now I'm terrified. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Uh, no, no, this is good. About,
1: it's all about knowing how to protect yourself, Bingo. right? And uh, you know, we should say it's not just AirTags. There's also Tile and other applications. So right. just making sure that you have a detector and that you're, if you feel that you are in a position where you may be followed, and, and this might be when you leave the club at two in the morning <laughs> uh, or this. Was, so set yourself a reminder to scan yourself there you maybe, go maybe i don't go to the club so i'm, I'm safe <laughs> <do> <laughs> but, but for our listeners you know if right. you're out at the bar or around strangers you just might want to scan yourself before you go home so that people don't know completely you uh i also had i wanted to ask you about the
0: banking alternatives you, know, you have like venmo and zelle and cash app apple mm. pay things like that how does digital forensics play a role in those i mean should we be worried about privacy banking information doing this all electronically
1: well, you know, when we're talking about electronic banking, there is so much work into ensuring the safety and sanctity of those systems mm-hmm. to ensure that money isn't lost. There's, there's lots going into that. And the security that they work on is top notch. They have some of the hot, top players in the security game work to make those systems secure. If you're talking about from a forensics perspective, what can we retain? Um, it all differs on the app. It's constantly changing. And you know, typically when we're investigating something financial, we're talking about fraud investigations. Um, so then we're probably looking at the traces of things between accounts, where they're going. I would make one mention about um, security settings and apps like Venmo. Venmo is a social Um, Banking app. So it is possible that your transactions are public. Mm -hmm. So your friends or followers or others may be seeing them. So what I would encourage folks to do is to go into their privacy settings and make sure that they're only uh, setting their transactions for private. That's going to be the big difference in what data is stored and how that's looked at.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point because I noticed that I don't even have my real name on, on Venmo because I got so scared and I never understood why people want it to show up in a feed. I mean, I don't need people knowing that I just paid my roommate for toilet paper, you know I mean? (laughs) So that's a good, that's a good thing to do anyway. Um, The other the other thing I just wanted to touch upon is, uh, you know, we know about carbon footprints and all of that. What about a digital footprint? Is that something that we create and can be used to help retrace any steps that we've, you know, figuratively, I guess, figuratively and physically um, any steps that we make towards something?
1: Well, figuratively and physically is, is definitely key because in digital forensics, there's a lot of uh, sources of artifacts that are geolocation based. So, and that honestly is usually helpful in investigations mm-hmm. of missing persons, human trafficking, drug trafficking, etc. Um, but yeah, your digital footprint, in digital forensics, we like to refer to this as your pattern of life. And a lot of times when we're doing an investigation of a crime scene, um, data from from some kind of criminal activity, we are looking for things that are outliers. Mm -hmm. When we're looking for, theft of maybe property intellectual property from a company Um, we're looking for large downloads and uploads we're looking for things that are out of the norm so yes we do look at the pattern of life Um, pattern of life analysis is absolutely critical because it's when things are not in their normal pattern and those patterns could be things you're not necessarily thinking of because not everything for us is actually the content. And that's what I was mentioning. It's, mm-hmm. it's possible that you have an encrypted message or that you have pictures that you've deleted that maybe we can't recover. Sometimes we can, but it is all of the attributes around that. So when you open the application, what was the orientation of your device? Was it connected to your vehicle at the time or was it connected to your home Wi-Fi? Oh. Right, so those Wait. kinds of things start to develop your pattern of life. Sorry to interrupt
0: but okay, that that just brings up another question so let's say you're doing an investigation you're you're analyzing the data from let's say a crime and Mm -hmm. the person who committed the crime used a cell phone but it was connected to the car but they deleted everything on their device on their phone but at the time does that does the car store that information and are you able to now get that information off of the car yes
1: Wow. <laughs> it's the simplest question you answer so asked. Yeah. yeah. Um uh to be honest, uh, you know, for practice sake, we've done forensic analysis outside of real casework, which definitely does happen on vehicles. We've done analysis on rental cars. So uh tip number two, don't connect your personal phone, don't sync it to your rental car. Again, <laughs> I'm doing everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um so usually I use the audio jack so that I can still get um. directions if possible. I usually carry an audio cable. But again, I'm I'm a little um more experienced, but <laughs> you're, the purpose for the functionality for the user is to make everything as quick as possible. Yet, yeah, but yes, there's a whole industry of vehicle forensics. It's a, one of those connected devices that we do analyze, and again, that that helps us save lives. It helps right. us uh, protect child victims of sexual assault. It helps us um, stop sometimes serial killers. It helps us us. Uh, stop terrorists these are the types of things that make it possible for us to do good and prevent more victims and also it's typically after the fact and a lot of times um honestly digital forensic analysis exonerates people as well who are innocent Mm. okay that's actually
0: a good point you look at the flip side because someone who is maybe near a crime or they look like the obvious suspect digital forensics can free them yeah you brought up something Interesting. You said, um, you know, it helps us with victims. You brought up children. And my mind immediately goes to Snapchat because a younger Mm -hmm. generation, obviously people of all ages use Snapchat. But I think about the younger generation and just, you know, the opioid crisis and, you know, the, the overdoses that we are experiencing in this country. And the, the role of Snapchat in that, you know, they they people think because they can message on Snapchat and it disappears, they can <laughs> buy drugs there, they can send certain things that they don't want other people to see. But how safe is that information really?
1: You know, at the point that we have physical access to your device, um, either because you're a victim or a suspect, which is very different than what's available for someone to quote unquote hack. Mm-hmm. Um, it, It is a cat and mouse game of learning how to deal with the newest version of the applications. But is there such a thing as recovering content from Snapchat? Yes, and from most apps, yes. Um, Maybe not everything. Uh, Like I mentioned, the metadata, which is the data about the data, that is typically what's really key in the work of a digital forensic analyst or examiner. So the recovery is sometimes partial and not complete, but we're able to put together a story, like a timeline, not really a story, but a timeline of the events that we can definitively say took place on the device. Mm. And with partially recovered information, we may not be able to see the message, but maybe we know who it was to and from and the time in which it occurred. And when you put that together with other parts of evidence, uh, that may be what, corroborates um but there have been instances um i think of the george birch trial um where uh the boyfriend dietrich was exonerated from a murder he was the initial suspect and was exonerated because he was wearing a fitbit that demonstrated he was at home it's a bit more complex than that but how did it it demonstrate he was at home Uh, Well, because he was sleeping and he said that he had gotten up in the bath, up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and the number of steps that were recorded both by what was garnered from Fitbit and the testimony of this case is public. uh, And so the detective testified to this and they showed this in court. It's actually on YouTube. If anyone's interested, interested. Uh, it's a very long trial, Uh, but the evidence from Fitbit said that he had gotten up for so many minutes in the middle of the night and it lined up with his alibi that he had gotten up and the number of steps uh measured uh match the number of steps it would have taken him to go to the restroom and back in the middle of the night and it happened to be that the murder also took place uh near that time in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and so it demonstrated that he indeed was not the murderer
0: wow so you're telling me we should all be wearing fitbits all the time (laughs) (laughs) what what i'm trying to
1: demonstrate is that the that the data can be used to tell the truth that's what Mm. we do in digital forensics we tell the truth behind the data and how it got there we do a lot of testing and validating and research uh, to understand how a trace is left and what a trace means and what that means is, is that those traces tell the story of what happened or part of the story and that it can be used both to stop something bad as well as to stop someone from getting wrongly accused Mm -hmm. or wrongly going to court. So it can be used for for good and for wonderful things. Uh, Actually, all the uses are good, right? The uses in digital forensics because we can only utilize it with legal authority are always for good. They're either to stop more bad Mm -hmm. help a victim um or you know potentially exonerate people and the great thing about our legal system is that both sides get to share uh their analysis right so there are digital forensics examiners who work only in criminal defense there are digital forensics examiners with the public defender's office um so there and I and we all uh, collaborate and work together on research and share our knowledge in the community Mm -hmm. so it's just a fantastic profession uh and you know we we think that we're all doing it for good and for truth and what's the difference
0: you you use the word examiners and you've used the word Mm -hmm. investigators is there a difference Mm. between those two
1: Um, So sometimes investigators, I use them pretty interchangeably. It's a good question. Sometimes investigators are the actual people who are working the whole case. Mm -hmm. So they're investigating the whole case. But there's a lot of different environments in which somebody who performs digital forensic analysis can work. So it depends on the environment. So they may be working for law enforcement, in which case they may be referred to as a digital forensics investigator. They may be working in intelligence, uh, so they might be considered a digital forensic analysts there. They may be working in a corporation to protect critical assets uh, and to maybe look at um, uh, HR issues or people who are violating the terms of service for using a networked computer for their company. People do strange things on company computers sometimes. <laughs> uh, not always legal things. Oh, my. Uh, and so, 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 so those things. Uh, so it, depending on the environment you're working in, you may be called an examiner, an analyst or an investigator in digital.
0: Forensics. OK, I see. And is there I mean, you're, you're an expert on all things digital forensics. Is there anything that you've seen that scares you that people should be warned about
1: you know really every time that there's a new technology we need to contemplate how is this technology going to be used i really do think that the people who create these technologies looking at um, the AirTag, for example that they have the intent of good keep people from leaving their backpack behind but we have to think about how could people nefariously use these things and that's that's really the question that people should should ask themselves when they're bringing a technology into their home um all technology can be abused and technology can be a witness so having your technology on may provide that witness like the fitbit we just talked about Uh, Technology can be the victim. There have been instances where IoT devices or Internet of Things devices have become part of big botnets that are being used for other nefarious activities or uh, a company who's hacked and a ransomware is put on their computer, which is uh, a program that pretty much says pay us or we're going to take all your data and then we're going to sell it to third parties or it can be the suspect right like it's possible mm-hmm. that your that the the actual physical device causes some harm now there's probably a human behind that harm but at that point that device is part of um it's being controlled by a nefarious actor right. so just being aware of all new technology, and and that's why I've spent uh, in my career so much time investigating new technologies and how they could be abused or used. Look, I've investigated everything from video game systems to smartwatches to cars. If it has a computer or computerized element, an embedded system, mm-hmm. I've probably investigated one. Hmm. And but it's normally. In the instance of digital forensics, it's to help people at the end of the day to stop bad. Class will be back in session right after this.
0: Is there a device that you are you it kind of goes back to my first question, but is there a a device that you find has a little bit more of a problem than other ones? Like if you could say, hey, you should use this device, not this device. Do you have any pointers for people?
1: So my biggest pointer is to use the most current of existing devices and to give some time to things that are new technologies. So for example, sometimes something might be quick to get out to market. And so security may be a second Mm. thought. Now, the U.S. has worked hard on legislation to actually stop that from happening, that when IoT devices are released, they're supposed to be researched and vetted and security enabled but just with all things sometimes the first release isn't as good as the second release Um, and we see this as users so just assume that that also probably applies to security not that all first runs are bad but just if things become a little bit more secure as they've evolved in terms of like your mobile phone or your computer my advice is to always be on the most current thing you can be because sometimes um, devices wind up at a stage where they're no longer supported. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you have Windows XP running on your computer, know that that's no longer getting patched (laughs) and that your data has probably uh, been exfiltrated, right? Right. But if you're running Windows 10 or Windows 11, both of those are fully supported and being patched. So as a device or a piece of software or an application, because end of life, that's what you want to stay away from. So new tech, you may want to wait till the second version's released, if that is your big concern. Um, I'm probably testing the first version. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you do that. <laughs> but um, but as far as like your phones and your computers, as long as you're not on software that's been end of life um, and that you're on the most current version that supports um, your financial situation, you should be good. Just keep it patched. Right. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're running
0: out of time, but I do want to quickly just talk about your company because when we were chatting on oh. the plane, it was really interesting and you have a passion for helping women and things like that. So what is your company? What do you do and why did you decide to do it?
1: Well, thanks so, so much for asking. Uh, so my company is Hexordia and we build training Uh, about how to get into the digital forensics profession, but in a way that's accessible. Not everyone can necessarily go to a college or university program, and I I teach at a university as well. And I just recognize, and the folks that I work with, we recognize that that is not accessible to everyone. So what we're doing is we're building training that is at an accessible price point. All of the courses are either free or $50. So if you're interested in digital forensics, a great way to learn more. And then we have a certification that will be coming out um, where you can get certified in digital forensics by actually conducting an exam. And those exams are open for a period. So once that exam closes, you find out if you've received your certification or not. If you have, you can actually use the forensics report you've created for your exam as part of your portfolio uh, when you go and are interviewed and are seeking employment. So the real goal here was to be accessible to underrepresented minorities, to women, to folks who may come from backgrounds where they just cannot access higher education or very expensive training and certifications but still get a first-class knowledge based on all of the open source tools that exist in our community for doing digital forensics. We really want to educate people and help career switchers. Um, I've been really fortunate to get to mentor and work with so many people who come from diverse backgrounds and diverse fields who are ready for career change. Uh, recently, I've worked with a lot of people coming out of teaching, healthcare. care, um, other types of government jobs that don't pertain to forensics who are really interested in learning this field because what you really need to get started is a love of solving puzzles because that's what we do <laughs> well
0: you do it well and um, we really appreciate you coming on such a, a wonderful mission that you have and I think it's so important for people to know about digital forensics because it can be helpful to you and then we talk about security and safety and all of those things and you touch on all of them so Jessica thank you so so much. I'm glad I got to talk to you again and that that meeting on the plane was not our last time chatting. Hopefully we'll do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Abby. It's great. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about digital forensics. Number one. Digital forensics focus on the recovery, investigation, and examination and analysis found on digital devices. That can range from computers to phones to cars to alexis devices and more. It can also be used to help victims and exonerate falsely accused people. Number two, Jessica emphasized that to protect yourself and your privacy, you should really do a few things. First have two-factor authentication. Jessica also says you should use a password manager and have different passwords for everything. She points out that when there are those word prompts on social media like, find out your wrestling name, they're really fishing for information about your passwords. Number three. Jessica suggests to use the most current model or update of your device and give some time for things that are new technologies. Some technologies might be quick to go to the market, but you want to make sure they have all of the safeguards in their models to protect you and your privacy. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on Digital Forensics. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed.
1: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.